a Merry Christmas and are glad that you're spending today with us. Now, as soon as we finish the whirlwind of Sunday morning, the 23rd, and then the Christmas Eve service on the 24th, I did the same thing I do every year. I went home, watched It's a Wonderful Life, breathed a sigh of relief, cried at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, took the next day off, took the 26th off, and then remembered that I had to preach today as well. Now, on the preaching calendar, this Sunday was labeled open. And an open Sunday means that whoever is preaching that day gets to pick what they want to preach about, all within reason, of course. Open Sundays typically fall when we have a guest preacher between two different sermon series or close to holidays. Now, an open Sunday can be both a blessing and a curse. On the one hand, it's nice to have freedom to choose what you'd like to preach about. But on the other hand, an open Sunday can also give you too much freedom, to the point that having so many different possibilities makes it hard to nail down what you plan to preach about. So after we got back from seeing family for Christmas, I got to work deciding what to preach on today. I thought about interesting topics, favorite passages of scripture, and current events. I look back at sermons that I've preached in the past, the Sunday following Christmas, and as you can imagine, most of them had something to do with New Year's. Looking back on the previous year, looking forward to the next year, something along those lines. But I found out what I was going to preach on when I looked at a more traditional church calendar that's been used by Christians around the world for centuries. And on that calendar, this past Thursday... December 27th, was the one day a year dedicated to remembering a man named Stephen. Now, you may be familiar with Stephen's story in the New Testament, but I've never preached it before. And honestly, I don't think I've ever heard anyone else dedicate an entire sermon to Stephen. So who was Stephen? Why does he get a yearly day of remembrance within some church calendars? What can Christians like us learn from him? And how can we apply those lessons in our day and age? So open up to Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take one home if you don't own one. But before we move forward, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we got through Christmas. Uh, With all the hustle and bustle and busyness and travel, uh, Father, thank you that we're here. Thank you that life is somewhat getting back to normal, which I'm sure is a little bit welcome uh, for many of us. Father, be with us this morning as we read from your word, uh, as we worship you. I pray that what we do here this morning would be helpful for us, but ultimately glorifying to you. And Father, as we stand on the cusp of a new year, Uh, Looking back on the positives and the negatives, the successes and the failures of 2018, and of course, uh, being optimistic about 2019, uh, or maybe being fearful or worried about 2019, Uh, whatever boat we're in, God, I pray that you would watch over us not just this morning, uh, but tomorrow and New Year's Day as well, and watch over us in 2019, uh, that we would follow you and love you and serve you and trust you, no matter what that future holds for us. Father, again, we love you, 
We thank you for this opportunity to get together and worship you and worship your son. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, we first encounter Stephen in the book of Acts in the New Testament. More than anything, the book of Acts is the earliest history of the first Christians. The events recorded in the book of Acts take place immediately following Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The book of Acts was written by Luke and was likely intended to go directly with Luke's gospel. Much of the book of Acts revolves around the early church getting off the ground. And the book of Acts shows us that the early church was not a movement driven by people. It was a movement driven by God. However, that doesn't mean that there weren't occasional bumps in the road for these early Christians. And we see Stephen step up to the plate during one of those first early hiccups. Reading in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, the Hellenists is another word for the Greeks, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they had said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, not to be confused with his brother Parmesan, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the passage we just read is the first substantial internal controversy in the early church. Because even after they became Christians, Jews and Greeks didn't always play well together. There were language barriers. There were cultural differences. There was baggage that each group brought with them from their old ways of life. And these two groups of people weren't going to just magically blend together into one big happy family overnight. There would be growing pains. They would butt heads. And one of these growing pains is a problem with widows within the church. Jewish widows were being very well cared for, but the Greek widows were going hungry. So understandably, the Greek Christians bring this problem to the apostles' attention And expect some kind of solution. Now the apostles had enough on their plate with all the preaching and praying that they had to do. Some people say that this is every preacher's favorite passage. Because whenever someone asks us to do something we don't want to do, we just say, well, I have to devote myself to ministry of the word and to prayer. I need someone else to do this instead. But the apostles delegated the problem to a group of seven men appointed by the congregation. And some people refer to these men as the first deacons. Now, the apostles insist that these deacons must be of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. Those are high standards for all the men that we listed. 
But one of them, Stephen, sticks out from all the rest. He is described as full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And we see more of Stephen starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. So before you know it, Stephen has quite the impressive ministry going. It's undeniable that God is with him. He performs great wonders and signs. He's a gifted preacher, a gifted teacher. His opponents stand no chance when they try to argue with him. But the Jews don't take kindly to Stephen. Part of it may have been that Stephen was likely a Greek. So like they did to Jesus, they set up false witnesses to take Stephen down. These people so dedicated to the law, the law that says you shall not bear false witness, they do not hesitate to break it themselves in order to shut Stephen up. So Stephen finds himself arrested, standing trial. But surely God will save him, right? I mean, it'd be a shame for the early church to lose someone so gifted so early on. Stephen has such great potential. A man so filled with faith in the Holy Spirit could be a wonderful influence and powerful witness for the church for years to come. Now, a few chapters earlier, Peter and John were arrested and God saved them. So surely he'll do the same thing for Stephen, right? Well, when Stephen gets the opportunity to explain himself to his accusers, he proves himself yet again to be a gifted speaker. And he proves himself to be a student of the Old Testament. In his sermon, which spans almost all of chapter 7, Stephen teaches about some of the most important people and most important times of Jewish history. He talks about Abraham, the father of the Jews, called by God in Genesis 12. He talks about Joseph, the son of Jacob, who was sold by his brothers into slavery, but rose to power in Egypt, all so that God's people would be spared from starvation. He talks about Moses, the man God raised up to free his people from slavery in Egypt. Stephen talks briefly about Joshua, David, Solomon, all monumental figures who God used mightily in the Old Testament. And Stephen's sermon has two main points. Point number one is that you can't limit God to a place, not even the temple. I mean, think about it. There wasn't a temple in Abraham's day. There wasn't a temple in Joseph's day. 
The temple that Solomon built was destroyed. Before he died, Jesus prophesied that the replacement temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed as well. Stephen's point is that God is not confined to a building, no matter how big or beautiful or glorious it might be. God is not confined to a building, and he never has been confined to a building. That's why he quotes Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So Stephen argued, much to the Jews' anger and confusion, that the temple was no longer the focal point of God's presence on earth. And he argued that Jesus, God in the flesh, is now the focal point of our worship. That's point number one of Stephen's sermon. But then point number two of Stephen's sermon, and this is the one that really struck a nerve with his opponents, is that they had a track record of getting it wrong when it came to people like Jesus. Stephen reminds them that their ancestors betrayed Joseph. Their ancestors initially rejected Moses. And those who are rejecting Jesus now are making the same mistake of those who came before them. Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, and this is a rousing conclusion to his sermon. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen does not pull any punches in exposing these people as hypocrites. For their rejection of Christ. Now, as you might imagine, the Jews don't take very kindly to a Greek like Stephen lecturing them on God, the temple, the law, and their track record of getting things wrong. And so we see their reaction in Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That's how you know when I'm angry. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when Stephen had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. So Stephen is executed as a blasphemer, executed by stoning. 
Stoning usually consisted of throwing a man off a cliff and then dropping a massive stone on top of him. And if that didn't kill him, that's when you took smaller stones and threw them at him until he died. However, even in the midst of this gruesome way to go, Stephen dies with great faith, great dignity. He looks to the sky and announces that he sees Jesus standing at God's right hand. Stephen's final words were a prayer request that God would forgive his killers. So I think we see why Stephen is considered a hero of the Christian faith and why so many Christians for so long have honored him on one day per year. But I also think there's a great deal that Christians like us can still learn from Stephen. One thing we can learn is that God sometimes calls and gifts unexpected people. I mean, who would have thought that one of the brightest stars of the early church would be a Greek like Stephen? He wasn't an apostle. He didn't even appear in the story until there was a fight in the church cafeteria. And yet here we are, some 2,000 years later, still talking about how God used Stephen. Another lesson we learn from Stephen is that Stephen knew Scripture. Specifically, he knew the Old Testament. He was a student of God's Word. And because of that, Stephen recognized what God was doing through Jesus in the present because he knew how God had worked in the past. Another lesson from Stephen is that Stephen was courageous. He didn't allow opposition to prevent him from speaking what he knew to be true about Jesus. Stephen didn't let people in positions of power intimidate him. He wasn't scared by their threats. He kept preaching the gospel, even when he knew that it would cost him something. Another lesson is that Stephen was faithful unto death. Stephen didn't fear dying. In fact, if anything, he seemed to embrace it. He went down worshiping. Stephen is the first person recorded in Scripture to die for the Christian faith. Some people wonder why Stephen says he saw Jesus standing at God's right hand, because usually in the Bible, Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. So why is he standing here? Well, we don't know for sure, but there is one theory that Jesus was standing at God's right hand to welcome the first Christian martyr into God's presence. And then a final lesson we learn from Stephen is that Stephen was a man of grace. Look again at those dying words. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Imagine saying that while that giant stone is crushing your lungs. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What amazing grace Stephen shows to his persecutors as they kill him. There is no point in Stephen's life where he looked more like Jesus than when he died. Now, at this point in the sermon, it's tempting for a preacher like me to wrap it up by saying, all right, now you go out, work hard, and be more like Stephen. Now, obviously, it'd be great if we were more like Stephen. The guy was a rock star. Just imagine if we all had the same gifts, displayed the same faith, lived with the same courage, and showed people the same grace. But it's not quite that simple, is it? 
The same way New Year's resolutions are not quite that simple. Because if you leave here trying to be more like Stephen, by your own power, your own will, you will fall flat on your face. Leaving it at, okay, now work hard, go and be more like Stephen, would be the equivalent of me handing you a basketball and saying, here, go be more like Michael Jordan. It's just not how it works. It's not that easy. But here's some good news. Stephen wasn't Stephen by his own strength. He didn't do all these amazing things we've read about by his own power. Remember the very first thing that we read about Stephen when he was first introduced? He was full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. You can be more like Stephen. Not because of how great you are and not by your own strength. But because the same Holy Spirit who lived in and empowered Stephen lives in and empowers you. So, yes, go out and be more like Stephen, but not by your own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit who God has graciously given you. Be a student of God's word the way Stephen was. It will help you recognize who God is and what he is doing and will help you avoid error. Be courageous in speaking the truth about Jesus, the truth about our faith, the way Stephen was. Even when people in positions of power and influence try to intimidate you or threaten you. Be faithful unto death the way Stephen was, no matter how death comes or when it comes. And show grace to your enemies the way Stephen did. Because God has shown grace to you. We can be more like Stephen. And we should be more like Stephen. I don't say that because I believe in you. I don't say that because I believe in myself. I say that because I believe in the Holy Spirit who lived in Stephen and lives in us. And like Stephen, we have been called, we have been saved, we have been gifted by God's grace to go out and serve in God's kingdom. So now we go out and do it. Now, as we close, there's one more part of Stephen's story that we haven't talked about. And that's who all was there when his execution happened. One of the people there was Saul, the young, brilliant Jewish Pharisee from Tarsus. Stephen's execution kicked off a wave of violent persecution against Christians. And Saul led the charge. But eventually God would knock Saul off his horse, make him aware of his sin, and graciously call him to love and serve Christ. Saul would become Paul. And through Paul, the good news of Christ would spread throughout the world and throughout the ages, down to people like us. Now, Paul writes regularly about his old life before Christ in several of his letters. But you do have to wonder how often Paul looked back and thought of Stephen. How much did Paul look back and think about the look on Stephen's face as he stood trial? A face like an angel. How many times did Paul think back to Stephen's dying words? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. We don't know for sure. But we do know that at least in Saul's case, God granted Stephen's dying prayer request. 
Saul was called, saved, and forgiven, just like Stephen wanted. And at this moment, Paul and Stephen stand together worshiping Christ. And because of what Christ has done, we look forward to standing there with them. But for now, let's ask God to fill us with the same faith, the same Holy Spirit that we see in Stephen, that we might follow in his footsteps. Let's ask God to help us become better students of his word. Let's ask him to give us courage. Let's ask him to help us be faithful unto death. And let's ask him to help us be people of astounding grace, even to our enemies. Again, it's easy to ask why God didn't save Stephen from being killed. He saved Peter. He saved John. Paul got stoned one time and rose from the dead. Why didn't God save Stephen? Imagine the impact he could have had in the church if he'd lived longer. But clearly God used him in his death. Because 2,000 years later, we are still learning from Stephen. And I assure you that right now, even after being crushed and pelted by those stones, Stephen is no worse for the wear. And because of Christ, we have the same hope, the same joy, and the same promise to look forward to in heaven, even if we end up like Stephen here on earth. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Father, thank you for the examples of Christians who have come before us. People like Stephen, who are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would fill us with faith, fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we might do incredible works for your glory. Thank you that we don't have to do all this by our own power. The Christian life is not one of us just continually trying hard to be better and work harder and do more good things. But rather, the Christian life is one of joy and one of receiving and embracing the gifts that you give us. Father, I pray that we would realize that all our works, all of Stephen's works, are not works that we do in order to gain approval with you, but are works that we do because you already approve of us in Christ. So, Father, I pray that we would take these examples and apply them in our everyday lives, that we would be witnesses for your son, Jesus Christ, in this world. Even though our world is very different from Stephen's, I pray that we would learn from him, have his faith, have his courage, have his dedication to your word, that we would have his grace, that we would show it to the people around us, all that people would get to know your son, Jesus Christ, better and would ultimately glorify you. We love you. We honor you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.